vintage sand. Hello, hello, hello. It's August. It's hot. We're still in the middle of the pandemic. We're <laughs> but we are still vintage sand. We are ever vintage sand. We are John Meyer, Mike Edmund, and yours truly, Josh Cabot, working um, in spite of all that is going on, thrilled a little bit by the Democratic Convention and hopeful about what may follow. But our topic for the next two episodes, what we're calling Doing the Right Thing, volumes one and two, is a subject that we talked and sort of debated about for a long time, whether we should do it or not, because, and uh, we're gonna lead off with an apologia. We're gonna be talking a lot in the next two episodes about the history of African-American cinema, both in terms of how race is portrayed in film in this episode, and then in the next episode, some of the well-known and lesser-known great films by African-American directors. And we gotta say it right at the top, we are three middle-aged, white, cisgender males talking at you, and we realize that, we understand that. Um, all we wanna do is open some doors. That's the whole point of this episode. Maybe lead our listeners, you guys, our beloved fans, in some directions that you might not necessarily know and turn you on to some movies you might not have heard of and get a fuller picture. I just, one story sticks with me. I, do you guys know um, Chimananda Ngozi Adichie, the, um, the Nigerian-American writer? She wrote Americana, which is one of the best you. novels of the last decade. It's fabulous. I saw her speak at a convention once and she said, that the most dangerous thing in the world is the danger of one story. That's what? the danger of one story. In other words, oh, no. of only one story being told. And that yeah. is the history that we've gotten. And so, you know, again, realizing the limitations placed on us by who we are and, you know, what we are, we want to add to that story, to tell another story, a parallel history. And as I said, we don't claim expertise and we certainly can't claim empathy, but we can claim passion. And I hope that, uh, that this, uh, as I said, opens some doors for you. So um, I guess we begin uh, at the beginning. Have you guys ever seen Griffith's Birth of a Nation? Oh yeah, uh, The Oscar, you mean the, which, which one are you talking about? <laughs> the Griffith, the original. The oh, clan, yeah, of course. The, the clan yeah. writing yes, to the rescue. Of course, yeah. I mean, if you take a film history class or a film theory class, you're probably going to be forced to watch Birth of a Nation. I wonder if you still today, though, if you are. I'm curious. I have to say, I still showed it. You know, I gave it some historical context, but I showed, you know, because the scene where the clan rides to the rescue of Lillian Gish and everyone else in the cabin, um, you know, it's one of the first great examples of cross-cutting. And if you yes. teach, right, and then you, Birth of a Nation is an encyclopedia of film. And you could argue persuasively that as horrible a person as D.W. Griffith was, that that film and Intolerance and his other films of that period are basically an encyclopedia of film technique that are people yes. are just you know, doing theme and variations on for the last hundred years. No, Birth, Birth of the Nation is a landmark film in the use of film language, and it's sort of the template for classical filmmaking afterwards. Uh, the Absolutely. The use of close-up, the use, use of editing, the use of cross-cutting that you referred to, but it's made by someone who had a very unusual perspective on American history and race. 
Well, it was a very specific perspective and one that unfortunately was, was shared was, by our president at the time, who was also- yeah. a, from the South? Yes, very much so, as was Woodrow Wilson, although he's, you know, became famous as president to Princeton. But, yeah. you know, when, uh, when Wilson was shown Birth of a Nation in 1915, he famously said, it's like history written by lightning. Right. And, you know, Wilson was a hero of mine because I'm a World War I buff until I found out about all he did to remove African-Americans as much as he could as possible from uh, government work and federal and from the federal payroll. So yeah. not, not so much of a Democrat. Hero. Yeah. Yeah. And that's right. That's our progressive Wilson, Wilson is a Wilson is a complicated president because he did advance things as far as social laws are concerned, but that aspect of him was horrendous. You know, and we, we're now living in the age of tearing statues down and it's becoming, and you know, we used to just sort of be able to say glibly, well, you have to be able to separate the person from the work. You know, I always tell the story of my grandmother who, you know, was staunch Zionist and loved Wagner, you know, who was a public and, and prolific anti-Semite. And I said, how is that possible? And she said, I'm not, I'm not having a drink with him. I'm just listening to his music. Yeah. That's supposedly become a James lot more complicated. Stewart, supposedly but, James Stewart was a bigot. That's so depressing. I mean, no. uh, but again, and, you know, we've said in other contexts not having to do with race, that if you got rid of, you know, because if you've listened to Vintage Sander, if you're a film fan at all, you know that our heroes are the directors. And, you know, very, very few directors were not horrible human beings. You know, starting with Tarantino and Hitchcock and Kubrick and all the people we've talked about, they were awful human yeah. beings. So... The, the stories you hear about John Ford, he could be absolutely awful to people. He was a very, very contradictory person. People always complained that Howard Hawks was very cold and also a big mm -hmm. liar. Ingmar <laughs> Bergman, uh, when he was in college, was a Nazi sympathizer. Yeah, I mean, you know, but we, we're going to try as best as we can. And that's, we're, bizarre. that's bizarre. Isn't that yeah, he, weird? He writes about it in his memoir. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to even conceive. But, you know, one interesting side effect of Birth of a Nation, of course, was that the NAACP, which had only been founded yes. two years earlier, um, got their first big moment in the limelight protesting Birth of a Nation. And for us, we're going to kick our story off today of the portrayal of race, specifically the African-American race in American film, with the film that was made in response, direct response to Birth of a Nation, and that's Oscar Michaud's uh, Within Our Gates from 1920. And um, most, here's, so here's a door to open, and I recommend um, that if you, if you even own a few DVDs, you have to get Kino's uh, box set called Pioneers of African-American Cinema. Because what I didn't know, you know, and I was a film student forever, you guys too, officially and unofficially. What I didn't know is that there was sort of in film the equivalent of the Negro Leagues. In other words, a separate but unequal yeah. yes. group yes. of filmmakers, which was unofficially referred to as the Chitlin Circuit. And these were films that were written by, directed by, starring the crew, the cast, everybody was African-American. And they only played in the black neighborhoods in the big cities. And, you know, most of the, those films 
were thought missing, but they keep turning up and Kino has collected them and cleaned them up. And this is one of those, if you have a DVD collection, you have to have this in there. And Within Our Gates, as I said, was made in 1920 by Oscar Mishaw, who's the I was, best I was gonna say, I, before, before you continue, in 1910, the first black film production was, was formed. It's called uh, the Pho Photoplay Company. Yep. It was founded by William D. Foster in 1910. So, so, there, so there are roots, you know, there are roots that go, that go deep. It's just that there's no, no one white ever saw those films, even at the time. So especially for us, when we were in college, when we were, you know, we're, we're going to tons of movies, um, you know, there was no chance for us to see these films. Have you guys well, ever the seen height, the, That early 20th century is really, the, it's the height, the apex of the Jim Crow movement. That's, and right. that's why you have all these statues to Confederate generals. That's when almost all of those were put up. Yeah, people forget that, but there you go. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's, that's a whole nother podcast, not it's only about the, about the daughters of the Confederacy trying to rewrite history. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I don't see, you know, ta Coates put it beautifully, you know, in uh, that, um, in Between the World and Me, his, his uh, brilliant book, which, and he says, there's no way you can celebrate the 4th of July waving a Confederate flag. Sorry, can't do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> These guys were rebels and they violated their, in the case of people like Robert E. Lee, violated their oath to the Union as army officers and fought. And the other thing that totally convinced me, again, we're turning this into a history podcast, was I finally took, took a look at some of the articles of secession. You know, South Carolina, Georgia, some of the early ones. Right. Every right. single one of them mentions slavery in the first paragraph. Yeah. So don't, Vintage Sam listeners, don't buy that lost cause bullshit. Don't buy any of that. Don't buy states' rights. It was about one yeah. thing and one thing only. And all those heroes whose statues are getting pulled down knew that. France, England, other European countries had ended slavery 30, 40, 50 years before we did. Everyone knew it was wrong. Right. So... Uh, so yeah, no, 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 um, we're not crying for any torn down Stonewall Jackson statues. But anyway, I was going to mm -hmm. ask, have you guys ever seen any films by Michelle or Spencer Williams, the other great director? I, I have not. I have not. I haven't either. The one I'm going to recommend to our audience, Within Our Gates is epic and wonderful, but the one I'm going to really recommend is called Body and Soul from 1925. It's Paul Robeson's first film. And what I love about it is that it's just about middle-class black life. He we plays can do a podcast on, on Paul Robertson, my God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, but, but, you know, I always show a clip from it. it Paul Robeson plays uh, twins. One's a preacher and the other's a I prisoner. I have seen that. Aha! Oh, my See? God. I remember that. I, 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 my mother was a nut on Paul Robeson. And I, I think it might have been on Channel 13 one night or something, and she, she made me watch it. Yeah, no, I, would, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, my and, God. And I, I showed I remember scene. him playing two men. I showed the, the, my, my students the scene in the church, which is just a church service, and there's a funny moment, and there are some sad moments, and, uh, and then everyone's just walking out and greeting each other. And I asked, my kids, what's remarkable about this? And they're like, we don't know nothing. I said, exactly. Where else have you seen portrayal of just everyday middle-class black life? 
uh, you know, from 1925, no less. Yeah. Right. So, and of course, Spencer Williams, the other great director of that, um, of that, of the Chitlin Circuit, uh, became famous playing uh, in Amos and Andy on the radio. Um, and we're going to talk about stereotypes in a couple of minutes. But uh, was able to use some of that money to make his own films. And the Spencer Williams film I recommend it's from 1941 called The Blood of Jesus, and also included in that Kino box set. So there. I think I've seen that. See, they're around, they're in the ether, and they're starting to become more familiar now. Was Body and Soul remade? I don't think there so. Is, there is, no, there's, there's another Body and Soul about a boxer, John Garfield. Oh, God, right. Garfield, yeah. okay. Yeah, right. I knew and I'd heard the name. There's yeah. the song and the Coleman Hawkins album, and, you know, it's, it's right. a famous okay. song, too. Yeah. So, that, so that was basically the 20s. And then, but before we come to the, you know, the, the, what I guess we would agree is the worst period for African-Americans in Hollywood, the 30s and the early 40s, gotta give a shout out to our boy King Veter, who's been mentioned in these pages before. Great forgotten director. And I had mentioned, I forget in which episode it was, that Veter's first sound film was an all black musical called Hallelujah. Have you guys oh, yeah. seen it? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. It's really annoying and stereotypical, but yeah. on the other hand, there's an old black cast. And Veter had just done the big parade in the crowd. He could have made anything he wanted. And, you know, although he was a white guy from Texas, you know, I got to give him some credit for, for, that's a fairly easy film to track down now. If you want to see an amazing, portrayal and a very... 1929. 1929, exactly. Uh, a, a much less stereotypical portrait of black life than you would imagine. I really recommend Hallelujah. But it did so badly that Hollywood wouldn't make another all black film until kind of, Cabin in the Sky. Kind of ironic that it was, it was uh, released by MGM. <laughs> Peter had so much influence. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine King Veter walking into Thalberg's office and saying, Irving, I want to make an all-black musical. I've got the script right here. And Thalberg saying, okay. <laughs> but, but it did so badly that, you know, it was another 15 years before MGM let Minnelli do uh, Cabin in the Sky. Which yeah. was, a couple weeks ago, I watched the Veter film called uh, Street Scene. Oh, that? with Sylvia Sidney. I love that film. Yeah, it was, I think, her film debut or her first major role. But there were um, uh, Afro-American actors, I mean, parts in that. Smaller ones, of course. But well, it was it, it was type. We have to do a King Veter episode because the next film he did was basically a communist film, or at least extremely socialist, yeah. called Our Daily yes. Bread, which was... Oh, yeah. A sequel to the crowd, the characters from the crowd show up, but it's about these people in the Midwest in the Dust Bowl, but they form a collective form. It was like a, a you know a Soviet film by Doshenko or Pudovkin or one of those guys. It's amazing. So King Vitor way, way, way ahead of his time. Definitely. But we come now to the 30s, and the 30s, of course, in the early 40s are the period of um, of Step and Fetch It. Just go back, back, back a moment, because also the same unit, Hallelujah, was released. Uh, Hearts of Dixie was released. And I've never was, seen Hearts of Dixie. What's that's, that? That was the first all-black talking major production, major studio production. Released by a Hollywood uh, studio. Yeah, yeah, 
Yes. Wow. Step and Fetch it was in it. Yep. And again, so what do you say about someone like Step and Fetch it? I mean, there's someone who, you know, because we'll come right back to this 40 years later when we get to black exploitation. But there are people who are making money and doing well in the business and, you know, establishing themselves on the ground. But on the other hand, they're doing so by confirming some of the worst stereotypes and most common white well, stereotypes. I, I don't think his career quite started that way. That's the way it evolved because that's what he could get. Yeah. You know what? And, you know, as Hattie McDaniel said, you know, do I be a maid in real life or do I get paid a lot more money to play one in a movie? Okay, I want to bring up a film that I recently saw in 1942 of Warner Brothers. Um, you made me think of it because of Hattie McDaniel and it's going to be on TCM this Sunday at noon. It's called In This Our Life. Either one of you mm. seen it? Heard of it's it, a, never seen it. It's the second Sounds movie brilliant. John Huston directed. And right after Maltese Falcon. And in it, Betty Davis and um, Olivia de Havilland play sisters. Uh, it's based on a novel by Ellen Glasgow. Oh, I have seen it. I have seen okay. that. Okay. Yeah. But when I watched it, the thing that struck me, besides the fact that Davis was really over the top, <laughs> and it was, I thought of it was a poor man's little foxes, were the characterizations of two of the uh, uh, black characters, Hattie McDaniel and the actor who played her son, Ernest Anderson. Hmm. And I've done some research on the film because I was really struck that this was not the stereotypical performances. Uh, both of them had uh, the, the Ernest Anderson character was the son of the maid, the retired maid that Hattie McDaniel made, but he was going to law school. And it was, it was definitely very, very unusual for that time. And I did some research on the film and apparently this Ernest Anderson had never acted before professionally. Betty Davis discovered him in the uh, canteen of Warner Brothers. I'm, I'm serious. And she got him a screen test for John, with John Houston. Houston liked him, but apparently this actor who had gone to Northwestern, had a degree, and he, he was something. He talked Houston into making the character less stereotypical. It was, it, it was his doing. And it's on this Sunday at noon. Give it a watch, Josh, because it's very Yeah, no, amazing. I definitely will. It's, it, and, um, but I looked up what happened to Ernest Anderson, and after that, almost all of his roles in movies were uncredited. He was uh, the um, um, trained bellhop in North by Northwest, and uh, he was the trained bellhop in the Palm Oh, yes, story. yes, that's was, right. And the trained bellhop in the bandwagon. <laughs> Begin and, to detect a pattern. And he shows up, I remembered him distinctly, he shows up in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane as the man on the beach who was uh, give, uh, selling Betty Davis ice cream at the end of the movie. And he did some TV, he did have a long career and I hope he made money, but almost all of his roles were uncredited. And he was, he's very, very good in this, um, in this our life. And it, it There's just, a movie there. Huh? I said, there's a movie there. Yeah. Ernest Anderson. Yeah, who, you know, and he recently died uh, about nine years ago, but he hadn't 
had any list, uh, listings in IMDb since 1978. But uh, I, I just found it fascinating because what's, what popped out of this movie, which was, as I said, a potboiler, there's some incest between, suggested between Betty Davis and her uncle Charles Coburn. And uh, Davis is just pure evil. But where were the characterizations of these two black characters, especially Hattie McDaniel, because after Gone with the Wind, she literally played the same kind of role yeah, each right. time, except for this movie. Well, she and, and that's- movie, But it was different. And, and that's the, where we should go next, is what do we do with Gone with the Wind? Well, as far as the way HBO decided to deal with it, having the, the preface before, I thought was, was very good. I don't think it should be totally banned. Yet. No, of the course movie, not. It's, it's, it's a lost cause story. That's what yes. the book is, and that's what the movie is. And, but because it was so popular, the book, and it also mysteriously won a Pulitzer Prize. I don't know how or why. <laughs> it is um, a well-written book. I will give it to Faulkner. I can tell you that. It's not Faulkner. <laughs> I, I remember reading it, though, when I was like, in junior high. And I remember, and you come to certain passages, and I'm like, what history is this? Well, yeah. <laughs> when I read it, I didn't know my, I was only in the seventh grade. And I, but again, you know, we have. I to, was in eighth grade, so. Well, well. But we have to sort of reassert the fact that you know it's again easy for us, having never experienced that, to say you know, we should just put it in context, but we should still show it. I, if I were African American and watching, you know, Hattie McDaniel and especially Butterfly McQueen, you know, who's if anything even more stereotypical. I don't know yeah. nothing about birth and no babies. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I would do. And of course, you know, the story of her winning the Oscar and what it took her about four minutes to get to the stage, right? right yeah. Because they had her sitting out by the help by the, in the kitchen. Well, the fact, and also that she was banned from going to the premiere in Atlanta. You know, um, the other thing too is that, I don't know why, there are some people that cling to the idea that it's a great movie and it's not. No, even, I agree. Even if you just want to say, okay, it's a movie that's racist, it's not a great movie. It has not aged well at all. There's still, there's some good performances in it, but some. I mean, it really well, isn't all and that it has, great. you know, it has one of the all, the, maybe the all time greatest crane shot in the history of film. When, yeah. when, okay. When, you know, you don't really understand the depth of how badly the South is losing because we've been isolated in Tara and around Atlanta. And then, you know, you see her working as a nurse and she looks and, the camera just keeps going up, 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 and the endless, yeah. it must have had thousands of extras, right. I don't know how they did, the endless wounded lying there. But I remember the, the first time I saw that, I said to myself, and I was, I was very young, it was when it was re-released one time in, I don't know, 67, 67. 60, 68, I forget. Right after I Vivian Lee I said to myself, am I supposed to feel sorry for them? <laughs> yes. And then, you know, to reinforce the point, remember what's at the top of the shot is the Confederate, is the stars and bars is the Confederate flag in tatters, you know, blowing with yeah. Max Steiner's sad music. So right. it's a little manipulative. The wall music. I think it's still one of the longest scores ever. Yeah. It's, uh, it's literally, wall, it's literally wall to wall music. It, it hurts the movie. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that if you dig a little bit, um, there, it's not entirely step and fetch it and, uh, and mammy roles in the 30s. For example, I don't know if you guys saw um, the documentary about James Baldwin, I Am Not Your Negro. 
Um, and he talks yes. about how much he was influenced as a child by seeing the original, everyone knows the 50s, the Douglas Sirk, but the original John Stahl 1934 version of Imitation of Life, with right. the, which is very powerful with Ethel Waters, I think, as, yes. the, as the mom and the that. child who is trying to pass, uh, she's very light skinned and is trying to pass. Yeah. And Baldwin said he was just profoundly, you know, affected by that film. And so if you dig, there are, there are things beyond there, but they're very hard to find in Hollywood in the 30s. There's not, and certainly no instances yeah. of, of African-Americans behind the camera. I mean, that doesn't come for a long, long time. Yeah. yeah. And, also, and also it's part of too, the 30s is the height of the studio system. And the main goal of the studio system was to make money. And I'm sure all they're thinking of all the producers was, Who's going to come see, you know, a black lead in a movie? Well, and remember we were, when we were yeah. talking, I think it's episode 14, where we were talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And we were talking about, because there was, an, a, you know, Tarantino always has, always stepping on racial landmines. And, yeah. you know, part, what we were talking about, one of you guys pointed out that, you know, that was the last gasp of the studio system. But it was a time when everyone, for lack of a better phrase, knew their place. And the place of black people was uncredited, usually unbilled or in stereotypical roles and certainly not behind the camera. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so let's talk about the passing thing a little bit. Another film that we mentioned once in, in, in excuse the expression, in passing. And have you guys ever read Noah Larson's uh, novel, Passing? No. From 1929. No, no. Wonderful. It's, it's, it's about a very, very light-skinned African-American, you know, who passes herself off as white. And that, of course, is the subject of the remake of Imitation of Life that Cirque does in 56. But it's also the subject right. of, of Kazan's Pinky from 49. <gasps> yeah. yeah, I know. I know. I know. It's not a great film. <laughs> no. uh, I think it's an awful movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> And it's, but, it's it's too bad it is awful because it is a really interesting subject. It's worthy oh, it's of making a great story, a but... And, you know, um, so Jean Crane playing a white woman, playing a black woman, trying to pass as a white woman. Gets, right. a, it gets a little... <laughs> Jean Crane had a tough enough time playing a white woman. <laughs> so where would you guys say that we sort of get the first stirrings of real integration? I mean, I, 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 I put it down almost, you know, baseball is going to keep coming up here. I referenced the Negro Leagues before. Yes. I think it comes right around the time of Jackie Robinson, which yeah. not coincidentally was the time was, you know, you could say that what set it all off was Truman integrating the military in 47. Yep. But then all of a sudden, boom, Sidney Poitier. And for me, Sidney Poitier equals Jackie Robinson. Absolutely 100%. Thoughts? Okay, I would I would give you that. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, the movie that comes to mind the most really is is the Defiant Ones. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No more yes a boss. He's so good at even Tony Curtis. He makes Tony Curtis better. I'm gonna be Charlie Curtis. Tony Curtis could be very good sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I remember him in Blackboard Jungle, which was what yeah. before. That's, yeah, that's one of the early movies. But again, this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is the other story that's not told. We got a history of film that was 
for the most part true, but it was just one story, and that's where it fails us. Back to what Adichie said. Well, have you guys ever seen the original poster for The Defiant Ones? No. no. Oh my God. You, you, you gotta, you have to look it up and look at it. It's, it's bizarre. <laughs> And that is, to me, The Defiant Ones is a film that sort of kicks off this period. Um, I don't know if you guys have read Ibrahim Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, but he distinguishes between anti-racist and non-racist. Oh, okay. It's, no Way Out. No Way Out is his first movie. No Way Out is his first. But, yeah. um, you beat me by one second. Then, then, <laughs> the cry, then Cry the Beloved Country. Have you guys seen that? Yeah. Read the book. It's, it's worth seeing. Then Red Ball Express, he plays uh, a corporal in that. Then Go Man Go, then Blackboard Jungle in 1955. Right. And, and you know, there is some- uh, Have you guys uh, seen Edge of the City? Yeah. Yes, I have seen Edge oh, of the that's, City. That's good. Good movie. good movie. And I think his success and his, his bankability, for lack of a better word, as a leading yeah. man, you know, I'll open the door you know, sorry for the cliche, for, for Harry Belafonte to, to take, you know, to become not so, not that bad an actor in the late 50s. I think he's a good actor. Yep. And for people, I loved him. I loved Spike Lee uh, using him in Black Klansman. Yeah, I did too. Oh, that was wonderful where he's telling, uh, telling the story yeah. um, about Oklahoma. And, uh, and even Dorothy Dandridge. You know, when you get a film like Carmen Jones from, you know, right. but she did, she had such a short career. Yeah. I mean, Why was that, Mike? Um, drugs uh. and alcohol, they say. But uh, she died when she was like 42. Yeah, I did not and, know And uh, Turner Classic Movies is, is doing their Star of the Month in September on Dorothy Dandridge. But they're only showing like seven of her movies because she just didn't have that many. Doesn't roles. have that many. But then you get these these very well intentioned white folks like Stanley Kramer, like Sidney Lumet, like Norman Jewison, and mm -hmm. you get these the this run of pictures from uh, from um, say fifty eight to. I don't know, to 67, I guess you could say, to when right. you have both guests who's coming to dinner yeah. and in the heat of the night in the same year, you know, that are really trying to, you know, in the best way they can for the time, deal with the issue. I mean, they're still problematic in some ways, but Poitier carries himself with such grace and dignity and is such a movie star. And of course, one- And, and to serve with love. Right, in the, well, in that same year, well, in 67. And of course, you know, won his Oscar, the first best- actor or actress Oscar for African-American person for not a great film. I don't love it. No, Lily. Lilies of the Field. Yeah, Lilies of the Field, yeah. But, and um, you, know, you get other actors in that, like Brock Peters, you know, playing Tom Robinson in the adaptation uh -huh. of Mockingbird, who's terrific and went on to a very good career. Who else besides Poitier do we need to notice in that period? Well, James Earl Jones was beginning. Right. He's seen in Doctor Strange Love. Right. He's seen in the comedians, which have a lot of Afro-American actors at the beginning of their career. Yeah. So, Raymond St. Jack, Cicely Tyson, yeah. Um, Roscoe Lee Brown. I mean, hmm. they're 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 in supporting roles. I will say one thing, and I, I you know it's not a great movie, even though I do have a copy of it. But guess who's coming to dinner is the first time you see an interracial uh, kiss 
it's in a movie. Granted, it's it's in the rearview mirror of a taxi. But uh, but it's well, you know part, again part of, part of that moment is to show is to show the, the the reaction of the taxi driver too. That too, but it is the it's the only kiss they have in the whole movie. Yeah. When I read when I read it from the uh, Mark Harris book about uh, the five about movies 67. in 1967, is that was the first time that Sidney Poitier or any Afro American actor or actress was able uh, to have movies, have their films shown in the South in white areas because it was such a popular movie and even the bigots didn't seem to mind. You know, they, yeah. I think they looked over the interracial thing and just looked at Tracine Hepburn. No, I don't think, I don't, you know, everyone mentions uh, Jackie Robinson, of course, justifiably as a groundbreaking figure, but I would argue that Sidney Poitier in his field is every much as uh, yeah. as influential as important as as Jackie Robinson was in his. We get Poitier's three roles in 67 and then in 69 the whole thing falls apart. And we've talked about this in other places. The studio system just collapses in on itself. I mean, they're still they're turning out sweet charity and paint your wagon oh. and meanwhile and, and which are bombing at the box office and Easy Rider, which costs $10 to make and brings in, you know, and they realize they really have no idea what they're doing. And also they're being sold off, you know, Paramount to Gulf and Western and all the big, and yeah. Kirk Corian is buying MGM and, you know, they're all being, and, and so it's complete chaos. But out of this chaos comes a couple of good things. First of all, you know, we've talked so much about the Hollywood New Waivers, the Lucas Spielberg, Scorsese, De Palma, uh, Coppola group, you know, because they're like, we don't know what to do. Let's give the kids $2 million and let them make a movie. What can we lose? Yeah. And we get black exploitation. And I wish I could play the theme song from Shaft right now. Because that's <laughs> Did you He's guys a mean see mother, shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. But I'm talking about John Meyer and we can dig it. <laughs> so. I mean, but the if you watch the, did you guys see the? I'm too young. I was six when Shaft came out. Did you guys see Shaft and Superfly and uh, I, I, Yeah, I saw Shaft when I came out. I saw what did you think nine. of it? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I liked it. I, I, I kind of enjoyed it, but at the same time, I kept thinking to myself too. Well, now wait a minute. I mean, it's not a, it's not a great movie, um, but at the same time, it's like okay, so we're now into appear where we're seeing movies with black characters made by black filmmakers and they're showing at mainstream theaters but there seem to be a lot of the same stereotypes and there it is there is it's, it's the step and fetch it problem again with black exploitation because not so much in shaft because the thing you get from that first of all it's one of the great opening numbers ever but what you get in that opening part of Shaft where you hear the Isaac Hayes song and you see Richard Roundtree right. walking through Times Square. Yeah. Does she feel like this guy owns this town? I mean, he has it yeah. in his pocket. He is in absolute control. And that is pretty startling, even for 1971. And, you know, of course they had chosen Gordon Parks to, to make it because he had done The Learning Tree. Back that was the first film I ever saw great directed film. by an Afro-American. Yep. And a beautiful movie, if you haven't yeah, seen it. Yeah, that's, that's a really good one. movie. But trivia question, who is the original director of Shaft supposed to be? Drum roll, please. That's right. Know. It was Melvin Van Peebles, you know, on the strength uh -huh. of Sleep's Feedback. But he was so 
difficult to deal with, you know, depending on who you listen to, he was either very arrogant or just had a real vision of what he wanted. And the studio ended up getting rid of him and bringing Parks in. But Sweet Sweet, if you've never seen Sweet Sweet Back. Yes. Oh, oh I've seen that. Yeah. I've <laughs> seen a good movie. Good movie and still shocking in some ways, in some very interesting and positive ways, I think. I mean, it ends with the main character played by Van Peebles beating up a white cop. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa! I mean, you're like, I can't believe they, they let him get away with this. But if you come to the next of the great ones, which is Superfly, again, a great performance by Ron O'Neill, who is a Shakespearean trained actor, but he's yeah. playing, you know, a coke dealer looking for one last score so he can get out of the business. I mean, how much more stereotypical can you get? And yet, there, as, as you guys said, there is a film with, an all, with a mostly black cast, with an all black crew, black director, uh, Curtis Mayfield doing maybe an even better job with the score than Isaac Hayes did with Shaft, if that's possible. And you get this I love whole the score front- Shaft. Shaft is amazing. And, and, yeah. but, and even some of the lesser ones, Dolomite, Black Caesar, Three the Hard Way. I remember, you know, and especially, you know, and you know Quentin Tarantino was watching Jackie Brown fans, you know, Foxy, uh, Foxy Brown and right. Cleopatra Jones. You I know, love Tamar Cleopatra Jones. Jones. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Kelly Winters is such a hoot in that as Mommy, <laughs> the drug dealer. <laughs> so on the one hand, again, as we as we said, a very mixed deal because here for the first time was were Hollywood studios funding black filmmakers and yet they were, do, because they were low budget, they always made their money back plus some more. Oh, and, and then some. Right, but yes, again- yes, Some of them made a lot of money. Yes. Shaft was a huge success. And you know, not only that, I don't know if you guys said, you know, Marvin Gaye did the soundtrack for Trouble Man from 72 which is amazing. And James Brown did the soundtrack for Black Caesar. I mean, you had some of the greatest musicians of this era doing these soundtracks. So just for the music alone, it's worthwhile. But, you know, but again, they were even among the African-American community at the time, there was some reservation because yes, there was success in ownership and creativity, but a lot of it was based on perpetuating the worst kind of stereotypes about inner city African-American life. Uh, a movie I would like to mention, not part of the black exploitation movement, but uh, directed by Hal Ashby as the landlord. Because, yes. Yes. because it, was, it was written by Bill Gunn, who, who was black. So I, don't, I can't think of any other movies made by a, you know, a top-notch, so-called top-tier white director that was written by a black writer. Well, that was actually Hal Ashby's first movie as a director. Yeah, but it was, right. but it it's was, it, yeah, but it, it's a good movie too. It's very good. I, I and, could talk about 70s movies for Well, and, and, and the one we're going to talk about next week, which is just, for my money, I mean, I showed it to my kids at BAM and they were just blown away by it and the fact that they haven't heard of it. We're going to talk about next, next week in our most important films by black directors is Killer of Sheep by Charles Burnett, which barely got released and is still very hard to track down. But my goodness, 
it's back, it's back, it takes us back 50 years to body and soul because what's so amazing, have you guys seen Killer of Sheep? No, I'm sure. I haven't, I attend, I attend to, to watch find. it, but, but the reason that, the reason they had such a problem with releasing it was because of getting the rights for the music. The music, yes, absolutely. Burnett just kind of threw some songs in there without, uh, but it is just there, it, it's just a portrayal of a family, just a family trying to make do in tough times. That's it. No, you know, no super cops, no super pimps, nothing like, you know, nothing like the black exploitation films, very low budget, but there's a scene. So John, have you seen it? I, I have not seen it. I, I know, I know quite a bit about, about it, but I, I intend to watch it. Yeah. Very hard to, very hard to find. There's a scene where the husband and wife are just sort of spontaneously dancing in their living room that is one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever seen in a movie. But we close the chapter on black exploitation on a very positive note, because even though you may accuse those films of perpetuating stereotypes, we know that there were a lot of young African-American kids at home watching these movies on TV, and a few of them decided, hey, I want to do this too. Yeah. I, I want to make movies. And of course, that led us to 10, 15 years later, you know, you know, the explosion starting in 1986 was She's Gotta Have It. Yeah. Of this first great wave of black filmmakers in Hollywood led by John, John Singleton and of course, especially by Spike Lee. Do you, do you Spike remember Lee, seeing She's Spike Lee is also, Spike Lee is also someone who was, he was watching everything. Oh, like yeah. Tarantino, just omnivorous. Yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, if you hear an interview with him, he'll talk, he'll talk endlessly about movies that he watched from the 30s and 40s and 50s. He was just, he was a film not like us. He was watching everything. Yeah, and he's, you know, he's in his own way. Everyone talks about the Coen brothers who went to film school around the same time that Spike did and went to NYU, mm -hmm. uh, being, you know, constantly showing off mm -hmm. their film, you know, the, the fact that they're film students. But uh, Spike does it too. And boy, I remember it seeing um, She's Gotta Have It in 86. Mike, what, what, what were the movie theaters across from Lincoln Center? Was Cinema Studio Cinema or Cinema Studios? I, me I remember two. seeing it there in my Who senior year of college in 86 and saying, whoa, this is a voice we have never heard before. And, and I got so annoyed, and so did he, when the press, when the press described him as an Afro-American Woody Allen. And he got really mad about it, and he should have, because the only thing he and Woody Allen have in common is they both wear glasses. Well, no, I'm going to argue with that a little bit, Mike, because it, 20 years later, no, 15 years later, when it comes to like films like The 25th Hour and Inside Man, Spike Lee becomes not just the filmmaker of a particular experience. He becomes like the New York filmmaker. Those, those films for the, for, the, that. for the OOs are to New York what Woody Allen's films in the 70s and 80s were to New York. He was sort of the film poet of New York. And he's kind of moved back beyond that now has Spike Lee. But oh, yeah, yeah, no, otherwise I, would, I resist the Woody Allen comparison too. I remember he was just furious and I thought, good for you. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's a ridiculous comparison. You know, and of course, I think the height of his art, although, you know, part of the joys of the last... 10 years in terms of uh, African-American cinema is, is his resurgence um, is, is that Do the Right Thing is just a flat out masterpiece. And I'm also glad that Malcolm X is a film that I, you know, I, when I saw it first, I thought it was a little uneven, but I, I think it's, first of all, it's just one of the five greatest performances ever in an American film, I think. I mean, uh, yeah, I, have, I would have to agree with that. 
Denzel Washington is, is great in it. And the other thing I'd give Spike and Woody is that, you know, is that the worst actor in Spike Lee's films is always Spike Lee. I'm glad he sort of pulled himself back <laughs> from you. you could say the same about Woody Allen as well. But, um, but in even School Days, his second film, talked about a problem that, you know, it's not a great film because no, he tried to do the musical stuff and it was a little too much. But the, I, I had no idea that in a place like Morehouse, there was racism even in an HBCU because there was a break between the lighter skinned and the darker skinned um, uh, black folks at a place like Morehouse or Spelman or one of those colleges. And that was a complete revelation to me. And I love the fact that it ends with Lawrence Fishburne yelling, wake up. And then the opening of the next film is Mr. Senior Love Daddy with the alarm clock saying, wake up, up you wake, up you wake, up you wake. And I think Do the Right, I still think Do the Right Thing is the greatest American film in the last 30 years. I'll go that far. I liked it. I haven't seen it in 30 years, so. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I, I would have to watch it again before either disagreeing or agreeing. I haven't watched it in quite a while. And some of the I lesser did, stuff. I mean, when I saw it, I liked it a lot. And, you know, Spike has also developed to be an incredible uh, documentarian over the years. Uh, oh, his, yeah. documentary, yes. his documentary about Birmingham, about the bombing in 63. Four Little Girls. When the levees broke, uh, his, his yeah. series about New Orleans uh, after Katrina. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, oh, it's that's excellent. remarkable. Yeah. I mean, there's like nothing he can't do. And, you know, he's hit some drive, but even some of his, but even his, some of his failures, like Take Bamboozled from 2000. Have you guys seen that one? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. I've seen Terrible that ending. One of the worst endings of a movie I've ever seen. But the whole idea of blackface catching on again, I thought was just brilliant. Sharp, sharp satire. It's one of those, it's one of those movies, as I got about maybe halfway through, I just kept saying to myself, I really wish this was better because, because the, the concept is so great. But it was just, some of it's sort of a little cartoony and... Yes, and he does. And one thing about Spike Lee is that he does tend to overuse the music. Oh yes, not as much as Tarantino. I mean, there was, <laughs> but yes, I, I think Tarantino's <laughs> use of music works better in his films yeah. than than, Sp than Spike Lee's. Because I remember a couple films, and I can't remember specifically which ones. I thought enough with the wall-to-wall -wall music. Well, yeah. and the one that, that, that gets hurt the most for my money is, you know, is Jungle Fever. I think Jungle Fever is a brilliant movie. There is so much going on there. Uh, and, you know, everyone's in it. Samuel Jackson is brilliant. Wesley Snipes, Ozzy Davis and Ruby Dee are there again. Um, my God, everyone's in it. It's such a great John Turturro and, um, um, and Annabella Shiora. I mean, just great yeah. movie. But the soundtrack was done by Stevie Wonder. And my God, what could go wrong with the Stevie Wonder soundtrack, right? Well, you, you, you put it too much. <laughs> yeah, it just, it just hurt the movie. And, uh, but check, if you haven't seen Jungle Fever in a while, check it out. I didn't care for Jungle Fever. I remember not liking it. And the other one, I, the other one from that period that I like is Crooklyn. Because again, it is not about, it's, you know, it comes right after Malcolm X. So he's not trying to make any political points or make any large statements. It's about him. It's about him growing up in Brooklyn and his family yes. and his family struggling and his mother's ill and his father's a jazz musician trying to make great performance by Delroy Lindo. And um, just wonderful film. Check out Crooklyn. And yeah. well, no, I've seen Crooklyn. It's a good movie. 
And, and recently, I kind of liked Chirac, which, again, was maybe more ambitious than it could achieve. That's but, the you know, Strata. That's Liz Estrada in Chicago, I, Chicago I, Gangs. I Estrada. wanted to like that so much. And it, to me, it just didn't work. Yeah, it's a really good idea, though. Did you guys see The Five Bloods? Yes. Yeah. I, I've, I've watched half of it. So you've only seen two and a half bloods. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that I makes me think you didn't really like it that much. Um, well, the, the music drove me up the wall. Yeah, it's, again, yeah I, that's, I thought the music, I was like, oh, my God, get, just throw out this score. This movie would have been better with no music at all. Yeah. Um, I, I watched it. I thought, it was, I thought it was very well acted. Delroy um, Lindo, like, where has he oh, been? Oh, he's, he's great in it. He is Sweet great. TV. And, and I love Chadwick Boseman showing up yeah. now. Chadwick Boseman is now playing, you know, Jackie Robinson and Thurgood Marshall in Black Panther <laughs> and, you know, and, and every, everybody important and James Brown. Um, but he shows up, you know, so almost sort of a cameo there and almost steals the film. He's great. I would love to have seen it on a big screen. Of course, we only got the chance to see it on Netflix because it was released this year. Yeah. yeah. But, and then of course, in the same breath with Spike Lee, you have to mention John Singleton, who we've yes. talked about a lot. Because, you know, as impressive as Lee's debut was, Boys in the Hood was even more impressive. And he was, what, 23? Yes. When, right. Yep. It's in, that's insane. Not only was he the first Afro-American to be nominated for Best Director, he was the youngest to ever be nominated for Best Director. Yep. I think he was a year younger than Orson Welles. Yeah, he beat Welles. And, and deservedly so. There's a film, well, both do the right thing in Boys in the Hood, which come out a year, a year apart. You know, you'd think after all this time, we could look back and say, wow, things were bad then. Thank God they've gotten so much better. And you, yeah. just, you know, you see George Floyd videos and you're like, okay, we're back where we started then, maybe even worse. And those films, rather than being historical time capsules, as you'd hope, turn out to be prophecies. And that's yeah. a fairly painful thought. But getting back to sing, what are what are other Singleton films that you like? I I for ex I really like Higher Learning. Again, an ending that gets away from itself. I didn't see Higher Learning. Higher Learning is you know uh, Ice Cube's in it again and Michael Rappaport, and it's about these different groups on this campus. In and, I have and, you seen know, Higher Learning. Yeah, I have seen yeah. it. Even Poetic Justice is kind of good. Tupac is great right in it. Yeah, Tupac is wonderful. And you guys know, I've mentioned this before, I love Rosewood. I, I, I know that it's, it's a little clunky in places, but everyone's making a big deal. You know, the Watchmen TV series on HBO, which is so brilliant, David, David Lindelof series, opens with the Tulsa massacre of 1921, which no one knew about. Well, back in 97, Singleton made the film about Rosewood, Florida, an all black town that was prosperous right. and was destroyed the same reason Tulsa was, uh, out of jealousy. Uh, the white community couldn't stand seeing black people that successful. Great cast, Ving Rhames, Don Cheadle, lots of good people in it, John Boyd's in it. Um, Boyd, yeah. it's, it's much more conventional than... Uh, yeah, I was going to say, it's kind, of, it's kind of John Singleton making a studio film that's, right. trying, that's trying to be well-meaning and, you know, liberal-minded and, you know, trying well, to message film. The other person that I, the other, the other thing that I recommend about that film is that uh, I'm a huge Zora Neale Hurston fan. And even if you've only read, like, Their Eyes Were Watching God, which is her best novel, I think, um, 
all the all of those books are set in these all black ex-slave towns in northern florida and this was the first time i've ever seen it put on film this was before they made the uh They've never made a Hollywood film of their eyes were watching God, but they did make a fairly decent TV film with Halle Berry a few years ago. So it's a great evocation of that, that place and time. But I was thinking about it. There were some other really good films by lesser known black directors from the late 80s, 90s into the 00s. I'm going to throw a couple at you. Have you guys seen Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> God, is that a beautiful film. Yeah. Holy crap. And she never, that really is the only thing, major thing she's done. But again- she television? Yeah, she's done, you know, she's working, but Good. not, you know, not in feature films. It's a, it's well, a that miracle happens. that that- We talked about that even with white uh, yes. talented directors. Especially, especially these, but you know, ironically these days, of course, television is not a step down like it used to be. No. <laughs> you know, now, now if you're a great director, you might say, well, why would I want to tell something in a two hour movie when I can tell it over, you know, 20 hours exactly. as, a, as a series? Yeah. So, um, and the other one I'm going to throw at you, I'm going to step out on a controversial limb here and say that it's not The Godfather or Once Upon a Time in America, but I would argue that Mario Van Peebles' New Jack City from 91 is one of the great American gangster films ever made never seen it it's really really good a great i mean it makes you want what happened to wesley snipes because he's amazing in it a lot of great even he judd nelson is he's had personal problems from what yeah, i hear and money problems and uh, so you know everyone talks yeah. yeah there's that Everyone talks about, so everyone from that period, we talk about Spike and we talk about John Singleton, who unfortunately sort of became a, just a very good studio director doing the Shaft remake with Samuel Jackson and doing um, um, one of the uh, Fast and the Furious films. I think it was the second one. Uh, and, you know, and then unfortunately, you know, passing away way before his time last year, a couple of years ago. Um, but I'd throw in, um, uh, did you guys ever see, Remember uh, Robert Townsend's uh, comedy Hollywood Shuffle? Oh, yes. yeah. Yes. That was right? fun. That yeah. was a great movie. I was wondering what happened to him. Um, you know, when you had uh, Leslie Harris is Just Another Girl on the IRT. You had the Hughes Brothers making films like Dead Presidents, uh, which was great. And how about the great forgotten African-American director of the 90s, Carl Franklin? Oh, I liked him. That was, One False oh, that was Move. That. One false move. I love that movie. Brilliant movie, and yeah. even and even better was Devil in a Blue Dress. How did I, that? I didn't like it as much. Wow, I thought that. I mean, because also that's Don Cheadle's first film. And yeah. And yeah. to steal a film from Denzel Washington is rather difficult, and he totally does because you're like, whoa, who's this guy? But that and, one I thought was kind of uneven. Uh, but Devil beautifully made, and you know, yeah. based on the Walter Mosley novel, and uh, I, I I recommend. And Carl Franklin, he's, he's working. He does a lot of TV. A lot of TV. Um, and, and so, and films so, like- So does um, Julie Nash. She's been doing a lot of TV and she was involved with uh, Oprah Winfrey with the project. Yeah, no, so, and so it's not what I'm saying in that first great period of uh, African-American filmmakers. It's not just Spike and Singleton. Uh, so Vintage Sand audience look beyond that. I mean, Eve's Bayou 
with the which was directed by Casey Lennon. That I've seen. That's is lovely. a very good film. Yeah. And even the the silly comedies that were made, the parody films that were made by the various Wayans brothers. Uh, you know, I'm going to get you, sucker, and Scary Movie, and White Girls, and all of those. And you know, and then good series movies like uh, like the Friday films that Gary Gray did, like Barbershop. You know, you know, good kind of just movie movies, you know, not profound, nothing deep, but all of this somehow has led to this second wave of amazing African-American filmmakers that we have today. And you know who I'm starting out with, guys. I'm starting out with Ryan Coogler, right? right? Because, you know, Fruitvale Station blew me out of my seat. Yeah, brilliant movie. I mean, how a film could be that personal and yet that political at the same time, and I had never seen Michael B. Jordan on a big screen before. I know he was in Friday Night Lights on, uh, on TV, but wow. What, if you guys haven't seen that, because I'm sure a lot of you have seen uh, Creed and everyone's seen Black Panther as well, you sh- as well you should have. But um, my goodness, Fruitvale Station is just a wonder of a film. I totally, totally agree. And we've said here in these pages before that Black Panther is maybe along with Dark Knight, the only one of the superhero films that ri- sort of rises a little bit above its genre. It's a, that's a magical film. And unfortunately, you know, another one of the great directors of this wave, Ava DuVernay, you know, after having made Selma, which I thought was fabulous. I did um, too. Great performances, great powerful stuff. Oh, oh yeah, very, very powerful performances. I don't know, the only, the little thing about I, Selma, though, I don't like, I don't understand why she chose to to change the history of it a little bit. And it, there was no need to. The true history is just as interesting and just as powerful. And it opens her up to criticism from people who want to try to tear down the whole movement. You're talking about Lyndon Johnson? Yeah. Yeah. That and she also yeah. changed the chronology of uh, the terrorist bombing too to make it more dramatic, and it really there was no reason to do that. It didn't, but I mean, David Yellowu was so good in that part. I just I loved, I believed oh, everybody excellent. in that, excellent. and for people who didn't know the story, you know, it needed to be told. And have you guys seen her documentary on Netflix, Thirteenth, about the Thirteenth Amendment? Oof. Yeah. How- powerful powerful stuff featuring one of my favorite the authors of one of my favorite books uh the new jim crow uh michelle alexander plus a lot of other brilliant people talking about um how slavery has not was not really ended in 1865 but sort of transmogrified into you know uh to uh imprisonment of african americans for nothing then into jim crow and now into what they're calling the school to prison pipeline brilliant film and then they gave her $100 million to make uh, Wrinkle in Time. Which I did not see, but I heard. Which no one saw. <laughs> I did. I have, I have to say, though, I, I love When They See Us on, on Netflix. Oh, on Netflix. my God. I, I, think that is, I think that is brilliant and very, very powerful. I mean, yes, it is, it is excruciating to watch at times. The second I, I episode where they railroad the kids and the parents. Was, Especially if you were a New Yorker at the time. I think it's great. It was really unwatchable. Great. It was brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And she's so, so she's someone who moves between, you know, fiction features, historical films, documentaries, TV. 
I mean, uh, there, you know, uh, her, her next Hollywood film will be better than A Wrinkle in Time. I can, I'll guarantee that. And speaking of fictional story filmmakers. Well, I mean, well, why does she have to go to Hollywood film? Why not continue to do miniseries like she did on Netflix? Why not? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I she'll think, reach I think a bigger audience that way. a director has more freedom working that way. And I think that's sometimes why some directors have chosen to go in that direction. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and maybe even now, especially we don't have no idea what the post-pandemic future is going to look like, but maybe even a bigger audience on TV than in the theater. Yeah. So, but we have to talk about Barry Jenkins, too. You know, who's too, you know, who, if you, if you ask me who is going to be the first African-American direct, director to win Best Director at the Oscars, it's going to be Barry Jenkins. Because Moonlight, he should have won for that. And you know how much I love La La Land. He should have beaten Damien Chazelle for that. And um, if Beale Street could talk, the Baldwin adaptation, which was amazing. That one, I, I actually like that more than Moonlight. I'm one of the few people who have mixed feelings about Moonlight. What did I, you- I Actually, I kind of, kind of agree with you, Mike, on that, on Moonlighting. I, I, Moonlight, rather. I, maybe I have to see it again. I, I thought I the know. third segment was so slow. Yeah, mm. that's how I kind of felt, too. Yeah, and- uh, but, you know, and then you have these uh, these comic directors like Boots Riley, who did... We, you guys like Sorry to Bother You, right? Yes. Yes. yes which, which I thought was very, very funny. And Justin Simeon, who did Dear White People. I love uh, that movie. Know, yeah, great, great movie. Uh, introduces to Tessa Thompson, which is... And, the, and the first... Well, the, and then the series that evolved from that on Netflix, the first season's excellent. Should definitely yeah. check that out. So, uh, and, and there are others. I mean, uh, uh, Gary Gray, you know, who's been around for a long time. Did you guys see Straight Outta Compton? The story of NWA? Yeah. Yes. Yes. That was, I thought that was really good. Yeah. And for someone like me who knows nothing about music, I mean, I thought NWA stood for Northwest Airlines. Oh, no. No, I mean, I went into that totally. It was at a SAG screen and knowing nothing about it. And I kind of went, oh, wow. Well, it's an amazing story, but it's beautifully yeah. told. I was very impressed. I mean, we are, I mean, we are really kind of, I mean, I don't know. And the other one I wanted to mention was Gina Prince-Blythewood, who's directed, and she just did that action film that's on Netflix now with Charlize Theron called The Old Guard. I, I really recommend that. Fantastic action film. Really, really smart. And, you know, Charlize Theron proved her action chops in Mad Max Fury Road. So uh, she turns out to be a great, she can do anything too. So we, it turns out we are living in the golden age of African-American filmmaking. I mean, thank God, only took us a hundred years, right? Yeah. And yeah, the last, years. Yeah, more than a hundred years. A hundred years. The last thing I wanted to mention before we wrap it up is that, you know, we have avoided the most popular of all African-American filmmakers, who has taken the next step. And that, of course, is Tyler Perry. Um, Tyler Perry makes these incredibly low-budget, incredibly profitable films, so profitable that he has now become, you know, he now, to use Karl Marx's phrase, owns the means of production. I mean, he's built his own studio complex in Atlanta, and people are coming to him to make films. I mean, that's sort of, you know, the thing that, Oscar Michaud and Spencer Williams could only have dreamed of a hundred years ago, but it's happening for real. So, and I have to, I, I've never seen any of the Medea films. Um, I've you seen know, one. And? 
I, I was not amused. I know white people just don't, I don't know. I'm not I guess not. It's, I just don't know why. But, um, but his films are constantly profitable. And as I said, he, he's now, that is the first black owned studio of any size or heft there, John, you mentioned the one back from 1910, there were small companies, but you know, yeah. so who knows where this is going to go. We may be at the launching pad for, uh, for the next wave for a third wave. So I think, I think it's pretty exciting. So it's pretty uh, hard. Don't, to, don't yeah. forget, don't forget about Steve McQueen. Well, I don't, the only mention that reason I didn't mention McQueen is because he's not American, but yeah, if you want to talk Good about, point. you know, what he made, um, he made Hunger. He made... Um, oh, he was a slave. He was a slave. No, what was his first one? Um, about the I Hunger? Think, uh, I think Hunger. I think yes, hunger. Shame. The Fast, Michael Fassbender. And then he made Widows with Viola Davis. Yeah. Um, and again, there are some, also some great uh, films coming out of Africa. I mentioned um, uh, Timbuktu by Sasako. And, Why? you know, so there are black filmmakers around the world uh, but yeah, Steve and Steve McQueen's film is, I forget the name of what it's called, but they are staging the New York Film Festival this year and the closing night film, which is always the most important film, is, is Steve McQueen's new film. So progress, yeah, hopefully, yes, yes. slow, but, yes. but, but definitely. And, you know, again, back to the quote I opened with, the Adichie quote, we're starting to really hear other stories not just one story or that storyteller's variations on those stories. We're starting to hear stories told by the people about whom the stories are about. There, I, that, that's almost English, but you see what I'm saying. By the way, I just want, before we leave the topic, and again, you can't cover, you could, you, we could do a whole podcast on this, but um, if, if Donald Bogle, B-O-G-L-E, has written several books, probably the best books about the African-American experience in Hollywood. I recommend them all. I've read a couple of them and they are very, very smart. And again, I'm just gonna end with, let's list all the African-Americans who've won the Best Director Oscar. Well, that's gonna be a short list. That's gonna be, a, you know, and there, maybe there's hope because, you know, Ang Lee's won a couple and the Mexican New Waivers basically own the award in the 2010s. So I think yeah. it's got to be a matter of time. And if I were a betting man, as I said, I'd put my money on Barry Jenkins. Maybe Ryan Coogler, but I think Barry Jenkins. Um, You're probably all right. right. So let us move on to our traditional necrology. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people to talk about this month. And we got to start with the lady herself, the grand dame of them all, the last of the stars. That would be Ms. Olivia de Havilland. Thoughts, gentlemen? Well, um, she has to be recognized, first of all, for living to be 104. My God. She just wanted to outlive Joan Fontaine. That was all. Her whole life oh, she was outlived outlived her sister by quite a, a few years. <laughs> almost a decade. I thought she was a very good actress for the most part. When she got older, she kind of turned into a kind of a caricature. Michael, oh, what, yeah, I know she, yeah I, of, a great, of a great lady kind of thing. Yeah. I know, you know, she I know what you mean. She won two best actresses. I know she won for The Heiress. What was the, the first heiress. one that she won for? And to Each His to Own, eat. which is a yeah. soap opera. To Each His Own. I've Not never seen that. Not a soap opera, but she's, she's good in it. It's on, on CCM on Sunday. It's Olivia de Havilland Day. Oh, all right. There you go. That's all right. why uh, the, uh, the, the Houston film, In This Our Life, is showing that day, too. All right. Of so course, we're recording this 
on Friday, August 21st. So on the 23rd, if I get this on out in time, right? So check that but out. Um, and we have, we have to recognize since we talked about Gonathan when she does give one of the best performances he's great. in that movie. She is well, and I love really, really all, good. I love all the Errol Flynn films, especially yeah. Made Marion, but every, every film, she's, they were just one of the great chemistry pairs on screen. I love her in The Heiress, and I've seen that play um, on stage like three times, and she's still my favorite Catherine. Oddly enough, a movie I don't particularly like, but I think she's excellent in, is one of her last A movies, I would call it, is Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Because she yes, comes yeah, on she's, screen. She's, she's very good in it. So, you know, like prim and proper, and then throughout the movie, you realize how evil she is. I don't <laughs> recommend the movie unless, you know, it comes on TV once in a while. And also, also, we must, she was really good at doing comedy. Yes. I wish she had done more comedy. She's wonderful in The Male Animal. Yeah. I don't think and I've the ever seen any of her. And the strawberry blonde. She's really excellent in that. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, yeah. there you go. Um, we also have to mention, um, you know, I would say easily in the top five, possibly in the top three, of uh, composers for film. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, he wrote, Ennio Morricone wrote a ton of great scores. Uh, I remember the score for The Mission, for example, which is a film that no one watches anymore, but the score mm. was brilliant. And as much as I hated Tarantino's Hateful Eight, I appreciate the movie because it finally won Morricone his Oscar. But Didn't I would- he before? What? I thought he had won before. No, he'd never Marconi. won. He'd been nominated. That's his only Oscar? Hmm. And the this, this soundtrack for Once Upon a Time in America, but especially, of course, the Spaghetti Western, uh, and especially, especially of those, the one that's the least famous, but maybe the best is Once Upon a Time in the West, which is just a, a, much, a much less gimmicky score than The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly or I, I, Dollars films. I like Morricone. I would not put him in the top three. I think he tended to repeat himself quite often. Yeah. Well, you could say that about John Williams, too, and you definitely have Williams. Not as much. Not as much. more versatile. And, of course, our number one's got to be Bernard Herrmann, but that's a oh, whole of other episode. Of our course. favorite composers, right? Yeah, we could do a whole episode on Bernard Herrmann. Absolutely. So, uh, a shout-out to Ennio Morricone. Um, Carl Reiner. You know, yeah. and you, you think of uh, Paul Reiner as a TV person, you know, from your show of shows and creating Dick Van Dyke. But when you look at the comic movies that he directed in the 70s into the 80s, every single one of them, for, well, for the most part anyway, was very successful. He did a lot with yeah. Steve Martin. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, going back to Where's Papa and, you know, Where's which I know Papa's Mike is brilliant. Is, I just yeah. watched that again. Uh, you know, he, he even did a decent job with Oh God. Yeah, with, Where, with Where's Papa is a pretty unique movie. Yeah. And, <laughs> and someone who made it to 98 and, you know, was just, just seems to be, seems to be one of the loveliest, now I'm a, an insane fan of the 2000 year old man things. Oh that yeah, did, who is uh, it? Mel Brooks. And uh, just, just a, one of Hollywood's loveliest guys and an underrated director of comedy, I would say. Yeah. Uh, and I so also really, I always enjoyed him when he would appear in movies too as an actor. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I loved the the first 
uh, theatrical movie that he wrote, I think was The Thrill of It All with Doris Day and James Garner. Yeah. And it's a very funny movie. And he pops up in all these cameos yeah. as the same really actor good. gets slapped every week on TV. <laughs> and it was wonderful. Um, and, you know, all the way through, uh, I loved him in Notions 11. Oh, he, well, I, I'm, I, that is one of the few examples of a remake uh, of a, Remakes are so much better than the original. Much better. This I was watching a little bit of Ocean's Eleven the other day, the original, and I think I wrote to John, I cannot believe how awful this movie is. It's pretty bad. It is uh, so bad. I, do, I don't like 12, and badly I don't everything. 12 and 13, I have to say, but I did love Eleven. I like them all. I think Eleven is the best, and I like Ocean's Eight. The women. Well, you know oh, like yeah, no, I that. actually like I actually like the second one the most. The really, I gotta watch it again. I've only seen it once or yeah. twice. I like them all. The original, the original though, there's a simple reason why the movie is really, really not good, and it's Frank Sinatra. He, Little Milestone, had a really hard time with him. Sinatra just refused to do anything more than one take. <laughs> and it's not not hard working in those days. Um, yeah. You do one take and like said, that's it. I'm leaving, and you know, and, can and, we, and it's not a good movie. Can we mention Ben Cross? I know you guys are not chariot. When we did our our eighties yeah. alternate Oscars, we you know, and I didn't realize that Ben Cross played uh, Spock's father, the Sarek, in um, in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek reboot, No Nine. But of course, I just loved him as as Harold Abrahams in um, in but Hugh Hudson's it's Chariot. It's funny Star. that neither one of them. Had much of a film career after I'm just that. Gonna say, I'm just going to say that. What happened to him? I thought the other one died relatively young. Um, yeah, well, Ian Charlson was in Gandhi, and then he 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 died of AIDS very young. He died of AIDS, and apparently, right before he died, he did a ten week engagement uh, at the in, the in the West End of Hamlet. Wow. I'm sorry. I, I love Chariots of Fire. I know it's very masterpiece theater. I know it's not. Yeah. I, 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 I it's I, well acted. I loved it. So to Ben Cross, and I think we have to mention Wilford Brimley too, who did not die yeah. of diabetes. I'm Wilford Brimley. Wilford Brimley. Well, yeah, he played pretty much played the same character every time. Sometimes a not a sort of evil character, sometimes the good guy, but it was always the same character. And the reason, though, he worked so much in the '80s was because he looked so much older than he was. Well, I, I, you know, I loved him in a film I really despise. Talk about changing the ending. Uh, I, I love him in The Natural, um, which is a film I completely despise because well, the of book what is Levin's. so much better. The book is so much better, and it literally reverses the ending. It's like it's like yeah. when, when Demi Moore made Scarlet Letter, and the Indians ride in at the end and save everybody. I'm like. <laughs> I've read Hawthorne. That doesn't happen. <laughs> Wait, what now? Who, who did? I, you know, who did change the ending for the natural? Who was it? Um, it was, was, it was, it was, was it Barry Levinson that wanted it changed. But I love him as the manager. He, it's it's such a great character part, and he and yeah. Richard Farnsworth, who's the coach, they re, they run with it. I mean, you know, oh, they're great good tender mercies. Yeah. No, it's just a really solid character actor. And mm -hmm. we lost a director, too. We lost Alan Parker. Alan Parker. Who Please don't confuse exception, him. With, with Alan one Cooper. exception, I despised Alan Parker. Uh, what's your exception? 
Tilt the Moon. I knew you were going to say that. That's a really good film. Shoot but down. I find Midnight Express, Fame. Yeah. I think Avita is unwatchable. <laughs> yes, that's mostly Madonna's fault, though, I think. Yeah, I would you agree. Know? I think I think Shoot the Moon is an excellent movie. It never shows anywhere. Never. I don't know why. I'll tell um, you, he, he did I two. I think Mid, uh, Midnight Express, I think, uh, I don't like that. I, uh, Mississippi Burning, I think, has some good scenes in it. It's very Agreed. well acted, but at times, but it's it's really heavy-handed. Yes, well, that's, I would describe that about most of his films. Well, they tend to be heavy-handed. But there are a couple of his films that I do like visually. His adaptation of Pink Floyd's uh, "The Wall" with uh, Bob Geldof as Pink is really interesting to look at. And oh, it's a snoozer. Oh, I like it. And, and, and I don't even love that album so much. And uh, It's Pink Floyd, The Wall, so it's a snoozer. It's like the same thing. The same music stretched out to two hours. <laughs> yeah, that's the album. I know I'm insulting all those Pink Floyd fans out there, but I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I, I fall in the strange middle ground. I'm only a Pink Floyd fan for their first album, which is when Sid Barrett led the band before he flamed out. But... Yeah, no, I grew up in the 70s, so everyone listened to Dark Side and Wish You Were Here and Animals. Oh, my God. But I think it's, a, it's an interesting visualization. And the other one, which was a horrible movie, but really interesting visually, was Angel Heart. The one with oh, Mickey God, Brown. I hated that thing. Yeah, not a great movie, but I remember some of the visuals of it. Mm. That was like seven or so. Yeah. yeah. And he did mm. Fame. Come on. I didn't like but Fame. I didn't think Fame was a very good movie. Turns out he's not going to do his curmudgeonly ways. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it hit me at the right. I was 15 when Fame came out. So those were, you know, those people were my age. So I, I kind of thought it was cool. But yes, I mean, we got to give a little bit of credit to, uh, to Alan Parker, and that is our um, necrology. Um, and as we mentioned at the top, what we're going to do for our next episode. I have one more. Oh, right, right. That's right. You and you have a good story with it. So turn up, turn up your dials, people. Yeah. Well, this is just a funny story. It's uh, uh, the composer Johnny Mandel, and he had a long career. Uh, Americanization of Emily Harper, Pretty Poison, Being There, The Verdict. He won the Oscar for writing the music for The Shadow of Your Smile from The Sandpiper, which is played at every wedding any of us have ever been at, I think. Didn't he write Suicide is Painless also? Yeah, that's the one I'm going to talk about. He wrote the music for MASH, and he wrote Suicide is Painless, the song, and it's, it's done, if you, if you remember MASH, in the middle of the movie. The lyrics were written by Robert Altman's 14-year-old son, Michael Altman. And it was like a throwaway thing. Altman said, hey, kid, you know, you're a musician. Write the lyrics for this stupid song. And that sounds like Altman. A, yeah, he wrote them in a day. And fast forward two years, the TV show. The song is played at the end, beginning and end of every episode of MASH. Suicide is Painless. It wasn't in the film. It was just done in that one scene. Right, where the dentist there wants is a to get. Rule, even though the lyrics weren't used, there is a rule in the musicians' union uh, saying that if a song has been performed, the lyricist has to get a part of the uh, residuals. 
So Altman in interviews would say things like, yeah, I made $70,000 on the movie MASH. My 14 year old son made about a million and a half dollars just in the residuals <laughs> of that one song that nobody ever heard the lyrics to except in the movie. It's all you need, guys. It's like rent, just that one song glory. It's He's all you my need. Age. So I looked him get up to writing. 65. I looked up his uh, IMDb. Suicide is Painless is the only song he ever wrote. There it is. All you need is one. Yeah. So, <laughs> so definitely add that story. But that's some guy. I didn't realize that Johnny Mandel had such a, 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 you know, had written music for so many good films. So that's definitely. Yeah, he worth, had a long uh, career. He died in 94. So um, to wrap up, uh, as I said, this episode, which we've entitled Doing the Right Thing, is um, uh, we're going to continue next, uh, next time. We're not going to do a best of list because it seems inappropriate. We're not going to list, you know, what we think are the best films made by African American directors. We're going to list some of the important ones. And again, as with this episode, try to open some doors to some lesser known films and films, even films by great directors like Spike Lee, um, that are not shown as often and are worth a look. So this, that will be the second part of our two-parter. And um, again, you know, we are just dealing with the African-American experience here and our, I don't even know how we say this. It, you know, we are, we are still three middle-aged white guys, cisgender, and we're just trying to come at this, not with a sense of empathy or that level of understanding, but just as film lovers and people who are passionate about film. And me as an English teacher, you know, I'm passionate about everyone's stories getting told and them getting to tell the stories. And we're lucky enough to live in a time where in spite of the politics of what's going on now around us outside, which is so divisive, um, it is turning into a golden era for filmmakers of color and especially black filmmakers. So that is, that is a good thing to be picked up next week. Gentlemen, any last words, last thoughts, comments? Are you going to watch the Republican convention next week? I don't think so. I don't know. No I'm curious. No I'm very curious how they're going to spin it, but it should be very, very interesting. All right. So I will seize the opportunity in the moment to say, as Eva, that uh, Vintage Sand, this is our 23rd episode. We are, as ever, and now a five nines and a four production. I want to thank Miss Melissa Cabot for her technical help, Mama Sue, for the space. Gabby, for our awesome logo, please, please, please check out our website, www.vintagesand.com. Clever, isn't that? Where we have information and other fun tidbits. Um, and oh, we say happy watching. Wash your hands, please. Stay the yeah, F stay indoors. Safe, everyone. Right? Fight the powers that be, as Public Enemy once sang. And may your favorite films always be streamed.